I had not planned or banked on a maternity leave of any variety, really. I was like, wow. you can write while you're recuperating. Right. I didn't think about what was going to happen to my brain after right. I had a baby. That's what it was. Like, I knew shit was going to happen to my body, but I was like, yeah. I can type. Not if you have a serial killer living in your own mind trying to kill you all the time. <laughs> the Writers Guild went on strike and that was incredible because it gave me, I don't even know how many months. It's like, it just, then I got a coli poisoning. Like, it was one redonkulous thing after another and then the strike ended and I had to write this script and I did I wrote the first draft and I don't even know if it was good or not I don't mm. you know I worked really hard on it uh, and it was so outside of my depth because it took place in the music industry and um, I handed it in finally and they were like no we're not even going to give you notes we want you to start over from the beginning uh, ouch and I had had a beat sheet and an outline that they had read and signed off on. And it was like, I installed a bathroom into someone's house and they were like, where's the kitchen? If you're a busy mom, but you have writing goals and dreams that you're working on, this podcast is here to help you achieve them. My name is Jackie and I'm a mother and an author of a self-published young adult novel and a firm believer in the power of moms to create. This podcast is about finding inspiration and insight. It's about learning new ways to fuel your writing and to share your writing with the world. And sometimes, actually all the time, it's about taking a moment to just laugh at and appreciate the crazy everyday chaos that is being a writing mother. Have you ever struggled with identifying yourself as a writer? Maybe you have imposter syndrome, or you just don't know what your voice is. Or maybe you have a mental health challenge that you're working through. And now add the overwhelming experience of mothering to the mix. Anna Conathan knows all of this too well. Anna is the Chief Creative Officer and Head of Marketing of Lumo Leadership, a collective of executive and leadership coaches who work specifically with working parents as well as luscious mothers life coaching for mothers. In addition, Anna is a writing coach with a passion for supporting writers in finding their voice. In her previous career, Anna was an actress, comedian, and screenwriter in LA working as an in-house writer for Disney Animation and penning feature films for some of the world's largest production companies, including Disney, Sony, Warner Brothers, and Paramount. She is also a mom. Anna's accomplishments are pretty amazing. She has overcome some big challenges to get where she is today. And in our episode, she shares how she overcame them to discover her own unique writing voice and how she is using those insights to help other mother writers do the same. Please welcome Anna Conathan. Thank you, Anna, for coming on the show today. Thank you for having me. It is a delight. I'm super excited to hear all about your journey. And I know that uh, we're going to talk about your work in coaching and working with authors and mothers and business mothers. But let's start with your journey. So um, can you tell me about how you got into script writing and what that was like for you? Yeah, um, I I kind of backed into it or got pulled backwards into it, which is odd. I declared myself an actress when I was seven to my parents and told them I was going to move to LA when I was seven. Wow. So it's nice to have a trajectory. It's nice to have a plan. But then you arrive in Hollywood and you're like, oh, like this is as far as 
my plan really went. I mean, I, I studied mm. here, I uh, went to Emerson College in Boston. So I, I graduated, um, grew up in a small town in Freedom, New Hampshire, where I was a real big fish. I was a loud fish, I was a big <laughs> fish. I was, you know, a talented fish. Yeah, uh, I get that sense. And I went to Emerson and Emerson was great because that was humbling. There were a lot of talented people at Emerson. And I did some writing at Emerson the first time I ever tried stand-up, mostly out of laziness because I had a comedy writing class and you could either write a spec script or you could do like six minutes of stand-up, but you had to have it recorded and bring it in and show it to the class. And I was like, oh, fuck it, I'm doing the stand-up. <laughs> I'm not going to write a, a script. Um, so I did stand-up and I did some writing in college. But again, every time I wrote, um, and it took some effort. Like I, I found sitting still in my chair, the assless chair part, um, you know, cut to my mid thirties when I'm diagnosed with ADHD, when some of these things start to make more sense. Um, yes. My, my comedy class teacher was like, you're a writer. Mm. My world drama teacher class, uh, my teacher who was my favorite, Miles Coiner, he was like, you're a writer. And every time a teacher told me I was a writer, I would basically tell them to pound sand or go fuck themselves, uh, that that was not <laughs> what I was about. So I moved out to LA and I started working for these two women in a casting office. Um, and I didn't have a smartphone in my pocket, so I didn't have a demo tape. I was a theater major. Like I could do a monologue from Chekhov and nobody cared. Uh, <laughs> So they were like, oh, we're going to introduce some agents. They let me audition for things. I got to read actors and all that stuff. And so I got to learn a lot. And um, But I wasn't, I couldn't get arrested. And they were like, Anna, you have to try stand-up. And so uh, they convinced me to try stand-up. And then people wanted to know, did I write? Mm. Did I write my own material? What else did I have written? And I was like, God damn it. <laughs> so that's how I got into writing. Um People were like, I think I, I, I was in a sketch troupe. So everything I did with writing, I was trying to use to be seen mm. as an actor right. and, and to perform. Because one thing I also discovered that is even when I booked things in LA, it wasn't the same as theater. It wasn't as satisfying. It wasn't as collaborative. You know, I'd, I'd get lines on some show and I'd show up and, you know, be terrified and trying to make my mark and there would be no rehearsal. And maybe like the actor wouldn't even be in the scene with me. It'd be the script supervisor reading from off camera. Um, so what I loved about acting was not necessarily present in even my successes uh, in Los Angeles. So, right. so I started doing like groundlings and I was in a sketch troupe called Bad Touch and I wrote a lot of the sketches. And so my agent showed up. Uh, I didn't know he wasn't my agent at the time. He showed up and I assumed he worked in the mailroom because he was wearing a suit at like 11 o'clock at night, like a full suit, tie, jacket. I'm like, okay. He's like, I'm from ICM. I'm like, I bet you are mailroom, half the going. <laughs> he's like, I see that you wrote about half the sketch from the show. You're a very good writer. Do you have anything else? I'm like, I'm not a writer. I'm an actor and I'm a comedian. Like I'll be okay. I'm okay with comedian. Yeah. Yeah. A writer. And he's like, oh, you don't have anything written? I'm like, well, I have a pilot script that my manage manager made me write, but that's it. And he was like, well, I'm really interested in you. And I was like, I bet you are mailroom. <laughs> like I was such a suspicious weirdo. And then I got home and my roommate worked at ICM. And I was like, hey, do you know this guy? Supposedly he's new at ICM. She's like, yeah, that's our new aging. That's our new literary oh, agent. Oh like, no, oh my God. So my first feature script, I wrote for Dan. I wrote for him. I, I had come up with this idea in my mind while I was walking. I, I write a lot while I move. If I'm oh, if I'm that's interesting. And walking, uh, I shouldn't say I write. I've now figured out how to capture stuff while I'm while I'm walking or moving mm -hmm. because 
it's almost like my imagination won't give me good stuff unless I'm, you know, ambulatory in some way. You know, like if I'm moving or if I'm driving in a car going yeah. at consistent speed, like, like let's say I'm going 70 miles an hour and I'm driving from Maine to Boston. My imagination mm. likes that and yeah. it, kind of, it relaxes. It's like consistent, it's meditative, walking yeah. is like So I came up with an idea while I was walking, mostly out of my own experience as a newly single woman in Los Angeles. I had been dating my high school sweetheart for seven years. And so I started properly dating outside of the state of New Hampshire when I was 25 years old in Los Angeles. And to say that it was a very different experience (laughs) uh, is is not an exaggeration. Um, So I came up with this idea about this girl with the Peter Pan complex, because all the guys I met, all my girlfriends were like, he's got the Peter Pan complex. I'm like, I would date Peter Pan. I would legit date Peter Pan. He'd be a disaster. He wouldn't know to pick up the check, but this isn't what, these men aren't Peter Pan. These Mm -hmm. men are selfish, self-centered. They want to get laid. Uh, They're lying. They're pretending. I'm like, I feel like Peter Pan would be like, like uncomfortably honest. Right. And awkward, but fun. Yeah. So I ended up writing a spec romantic comedy for mailroom agent, not mailroom, <laughs> um, about a girl with a woman with a Peter Pan complex, who's a young mother, a single mother, mm. um, who is a children's author and illustrator of books. And she is kind of a hot mess, but a great uh, author and illustrator with a great book series that she's sort of dried up on. And she has a little boy and she's just really immature. Mm. and her husband ex-husband is sort of a captain hook kind of figure and peter pan um comes to her house because she's she's not the most responsible mother so he comes to take her son oh but he ends up falling in love with her because he's never met an adult who embodied childhood so much so Mm. it ends up becoming like a big for women women with the peter pan complex and like that sort of thing but he ends up growing up to meet her and they fall in love but it's a disaster. So I wrote this romantic comedy. Um, and my goal was to write a romantic comedy that had all of the beats and all of the, the yummy things we like. But at the end, she saves herself. He goes, mm. he goes back to Neverland and she saves herself. And it's nice. So anyway, I wrote that. And that was my spec script. And that um, I ran into some rights issues with Disney and Sony because they oh. claimed Peter Pan, which they don't. Um, so instead of it going out as a sexy spec script think of uh spec scripts as like real estate when a house goes on the market that's awesome everybody scrambles to get in and get their offer in so one of the few things that happens quickly in hollywood is spec sales okay you can create a market for it you can drive a frenzy for it it's an original idea a new writer everybody gets hot and bothered if the agent's good they can create drama like well i've only sent it to three studios and i feel like sony's interested so you know take your time but Right. So that was what was going to happen. But because Sony and Disney were the first two companies that got the script, they were like, I dare you to sell it. We're going to keep you so busy in court, like your head will spin. And I was like, so my agent's like, okay, go write another spec script. I'm like, I just gave birth. Oh, yeah. I just gave birth. (laughs) And to my point before, I don't like sitting alone in a room and writing. The ask plus chair part and the blank page part is incredibly hard for me. Even though I have the whole story in my head, getting it from here and out of here Mm. is really hard. Yeah. (laughs) So, um, but what happened is I ended up in a reading pile. Reading piles are not fast because there's no rush. There's no market. There's no, 
bloodlust or, right. or fervor. Um, so it took about six months for that to come up as a sample read, like send me your new writer. Like, do you have any new young writers who are like good and cheap and hungry and fresh? <laughs> and, um, so it took about six months for my script to rise uh, up the piles. And I ended up getting hired at uh, Disney Animation. And I worked um, in, in um, Disney Animation for a year on a bunch of different projects. I like to call that being paid to go to grad school. That was really cool because the thing that was hard for me was I presented really well in the room. I pitched really well. I told story really well. I was funny. So like my acting, my improv and my stand yeah. really served me in the room. And, and there was, there are a lot of writers who are quite introverted. So I was a little bit of a, a break from the ordinary. They're like, you're not just a writer. Right. And I'm like, no, now people are interested. Now people are seeing the actress. Right. So yeah. that worked out really well. And my batting average was great. I booked pretty much everything I went out on, but then I'd get home and then I'd feel like a complete imposter. I didn't study screenwriting. I didn't, I learned structure on the ground. I mean, obviously I think we all innately know structure because we've been reading stories and um, watching stories our whole lives. So if you're really pressed, like when you watch a TV show, you know when something's gonna happen or when yeah. the music changes, you're like, uh-oh. Like, yeah. you, know, you know that when someone is paying you $100,000 to write something, you know, it raises the stakes and I'm like, oh my God, I'm alone. Yeah. Oh my God, my fantasy is that I wanna be on a writing staff, which I still would like to do, but I moved away from Los Angeles. So my thought was like a writing staff to me on a half hour show or one hour dramedy feels like you've got some structure, you've got a team, You've got like, you share the load, you know, but screenwriting, just like novel writing, memoir writing, when you're writing by yourself, you're kind of out there on an ice flow, um, unless you can create structures and connection and have a writing group or have a coach or, you know, any yeah. of those, things. but I didn't have that. And I felt a real um, illegitimacy that I had earned it, that I hadn't, but I was afraid to say anything to anybody about how uncomfortable I was. Um, or, or how inept I felt. And it, you know, like to be like, do you guys know a good screenwriting class? Like, if, <laughs> you know, if you have this huge contract with Disney and I've got a manager, I've got a lawyer, I'm in the union, like everything about me on paper says I'm a professional writer, but people, I mean, people are 40s, you know, I'm in, I'm in LA for seven years and I'm like, I'm an actor. What have you been in? <laughs> Nothing lately. Um, yeah. And, to now have a real job and be in the mm -hmm. union and getting paid and working for major studios. People be like, what do you do for a living? I'm like, I am for a screenwriter. Like, oh yeah, well, who are you working for? I'm like, I didn't Disney, Disney. You know, <laughs> I didn't feel like I deserved it. Um, and that really colored my experience. Now I learned a yeah. lot in the process, but I was so scared most of the time, most mm -hmm. of the time um, that it, you know, it kept me skinny. That was back when anxiety was slimming. <laughs> Um, so yeah, and, and then you get to a point where, you know, because I was a baby writer and reasonably priced, um, I, uh, a lot of the work I went out on, um, would, would be job openings would come up. Like, um, we bought this script or we bought this book and we don't know what to do with it. And like, maybe you don't have enough money to hire like Susanna Grant or, you know, some sexy, huge, famous screenwriter, uh, but we're not ready to throw it away yet. We're not ready to put it in the back of the closet. So, hey, Anna, read this shitty script and then come in and tell us what you would do with this shitty script. And so I go mm -hmm. 
creative, come up with my ideas, then I'd go in and pitch to the production company, and then I'd go in and you know pitch my way up the food chain, which, as I said, I loved doing. I was very good at. Mm. And after being an actress for so long too, like I remember one time I, I was never in a lobby with this with another writer except once. But when I was an actress, I was always in the lobby with like twenty women who were like hotter, better boobs, great ass. She I've seen her in stuff. She's known, you know, like very stressful. And as a screenwriter, you know, they validated my parking. They gave me water. Mm. Um, they treated yeah. me so much better. And then yeah. one day I was in a lobby with another woman. And, and I realized that we were both in to pitch for the same job. And it just like ice water ran through my veins. And immediately I was like, she's skinnier than I am. And I was like, oh, that doesn't matter. I'm a writer. Yeah. <laughs> it just legitimately doesn't matter. And then she went in first and I was like, I'm going to fucking erase their Etch-A-Sketch. I'm going to clean that room of any memory of her. And I'm going to get this fucking job. And I did. Wow. But as an actress, I didn't have any of that. So it was a weird, it was a weird balance, but anything I worked on and I I worked steadily for like three years, four years, nothing got made, nothing got made. And, um, just the business, you know, in in every situation, there was a different story. Um, you know, I, I worked on a movie that, that got shelled at Disney animation. I worked on Nomeo and Juliet, which did get made, but it it ended ended up going through a lot of iterations that, so my fingerprints weren't really on it when it got made. Mm. I didn't get the, I didn't get the poster, the quest of the poster. I want a poster that hangs in my office that says Mm. screenplay written by, you know, so when, when civilians ask, that's what they want to know. What have I seen? What did you write? Where's the poster? Right. And I didn't have the poster, but every project I'm pouring my heart in. I'm really, you know, and that's, you know, being someone who's in highly empathic and very sensitive and emotional and with a background in acting, Yeah. you know, like, oh, I'm like acting it out. I'm feeling, oh yeah. Oh, sorry. And that's not going, you know, one movie, um, made of honor, uh, both that movie and another movie made of honor were being made by Sony. But, uh, my movie was inside of a different production company run by Joe Roth called revolution. And, Meanwhile, while we're we're working on Maid of Honor, Neil Moritz's company at Sony is working on a totally different Maid of Honor with Patrick Dempsey at the height of McDreaminess. So the day I handed in my script, my agent called and said, did you know that Neil Moritz is making a movie called Maid of Honor and Patrick Dempsey is attached and they just went into pre-production? And I was like, no, I, I believe that's your job, actually. <laughs> um, <laughs> And no one, no one even read that script. No one even no. read that script. No, you're killing me. I got oh paid. Oh yeah, I got, got paid. paid. I got you great got insurance. Insurance that covered acupuncture and all kinds of cool things. LA Guild Insurance is great. I got to go to three <laughs> movies during the, um, you know, the three awards season push. You know, like there are plenty of things about my life that were nice, but I felt sad. I felt empty. Mm. I felt frustrated. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. So that's what it was like. And I I worked um, for Oprah Winfrey's company, adapting a novel for Terry McMillan. Um, Sony's like, we don't know what to do uh, with a movie about a black woman in menopause. So I died. Mm -hmm. Um, They knew the rights. Uh, I had another movie with Jamie Foxx's production company in Nickelodeon. My development executive got fired. The studio head got fired. Oh, and that's when I had Sam and I dropped my basket. So like, that was my last that was my last job. And that one I thought had legs, you know, cause Jamie Foxx was at the height of his, that was after Ray and 
it's a funny movie, good idea, but you know, the studio, there's like the studio system, there's the production company system, there's who's attached, are they available, um, rights issues, you know, do you still retain the rights? Is it worth reinvesting in the rights? Mm. There are a lot of different things. And, and is there, you know, it's rare, I think, that someone else is making the exact same film at the same time at the same studio. I think that was a real <laughs> rare one. Um, oh, yeah, that is and in horrific. Disney animation, in Disney animation, everybody's working all the time trying to make the next movie and they're competing in-house for that slot with each other. So when I was working on Frady Cat, which was the, the job I got brought in on, there were four other movies and they were all racing to get that slot because only one movie really, I mean, now that Pix, that was before Pixar was fully ensconced in the Disney system, um, you know, Disney animation was only really doing one movie every three to five years or like they had it in a rotation. Mm. Uh, so you're competing in-house with your coworkers, which is intense. It sounds intense. The whole thing sounds intense and volatile and a little bit heartbreaking. And, and, and it feels, specifically at that phase in my life, that age, mm -hmm. um, in my 20s, uh, and really up until I was pregnant, um, it felt like, it's funny being a coach now and being 49, I'm like, I did have autonomy. I did have some control. I just didn't know it. Mm. So you think you're at the mercy of everybody else. Right. And it feels that way a lot, but it, yeah. it's not necessarily true, but I didn't, I didn't, as a as a girl with undiagnosed ADHD, a lot of, um, you know, you spend time in LA and you get said no, not just no to, but like you're fat, you're not sexy. Like you hear some amazing stuff. Um, it can really erode your confidence and your sense of autom autonomy. And um, mm -hmm. instead of be like, oh, what is my unique offering? What is my gift on this planet? Why am I here? Why yeah. did the universe, the force, God, Jesus, Yahweh, Muhammad, whoever, why did they put me here? What is it that I'm supposed to do? And how do I spend that day giving that gift? Mm. That's not where I was at. No, no. <laughs> now I'm like, like, you know, if I go out and I'm a really nice person and I talk to three strangers, I'm like, I have humaned well today. <laughs> Back then I was like, why am I not thinner? How do I get an agent? I need a demo tape. <laughs> you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so that was a, a weird time. And then I got, I got the Jamie Foxx job when I was pregnant, newly pregnant. And then I sold a pilot, an original pilot to Warner Brothers while I was pregnant. So, you know, motherhood, I remember people at this, it, you know, going on these meetings when I was pitching my, my pilot, my half hour script to the different studios and production companies. They were like, so you're, you're pregnant? Should you be telling people that? And I'm like, well, I mean, like, if you see me in three months and I don't look pregnant, maybe let's not talk about it. <laughs> Unless you want to get into it, because I'll talk about anything, but I'm going to promise you it'll be uncomfortable. <laughs> um, you know, so when I finally sold, so I sold the pilot into Warner Brothers, yeah, to Warner Brothers, and then we workshopped it and, and they helped me develop it. So by the last time I had a meeting with them, when we started taking it out to networks, I was really pregnant. Like I was like, I could still fly because I was out in LA, but I could not, um, you know, mobility and whatnot. I was large. I was a very, yeah. a very short uh, torso. So, mm. um, and then, you know, things were good. I was like mother, so far motherhood is not impinging, impeding. It's a new source of comedy. Um, <laughs> it's true. Know? 
It's a new thing to talk about. People love talking about pregnant ladies and babies and and then I didn't get didn't get purchased by a network. So it kind of like I got paid again. Mm. I got paid well. Yeah. But it didn't go anywhere. Um and then and then I had a baby. And I thought, people have been having babies for thousands of years. How hard could it be? Like everybody out there with babies seems all right. right? <laughs> I see people parenting all the time. They have jobs, they do things, they drive cars, they go places, they yeah, just like I'm adding a roommate. Mm-mm-mm. What a shit show. Um, I had the nicest baby. Sam Conathan was a delightful, kind, easy baby. I was a mess. Um, kind of in all ways possible. It's mm-hmm. it's emotional to talk about. Um, because I had a, a I had no anticipation that I was gonna have a C-section. I did. I was like, I'm definitely not. Thank God I didn't make a beautiful birth plan because then I would have been like apoplectic. If I put the time into writing something, if I'm going to put my ass in the chair and create something, <laughs> I want to know that it's going to go to use. And that was the one thing that I really discerned during this whole experience. But mm. I had a C-section, which was not something I anticipated, but I didn't have a dramatic birth. It was like, we think this baby's tangled based on his mm. heartbeat. So let's yeah. get into the OR. Yeah. And I was like, no. Um, and then it just sort of from there got trickier and I had mm. breast infections and, and then reinfections and then postpartum depression and, 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 um, and that really, well, I've talked a lot, but that was where things started to change. Yeah. So you were in a place professionally where you were, you were getting paid well and you were able to do work that was sound like you really enjoyed the work itself, but the dissatisfaction was that it never seemed to have an impact, you know, communication, writing is really about communication, right? And you weren't able to see that fulfilled. And I could hear that was disappointing. And now you have Sam, your -hmm. first child. So what happened? How did that change things for you? Well, I became, uh, really scared and really lonely and my and my self-judgment really turned in on myself you know my partner Mike um he's a great dad he's a great husband um and because I was so sick and I'd never had surgery before in my life so this was a really intense experience um I had two breast surgeries and the c-section all within a month and um whoa and you know, then I was, I was beating myself up about not having to work vaginally. I was beating myself up about having to give up breastfeeding because that I wasn't making enough out of one breast. And the other one, I literally had an open wound that I had like a blowhole. Um, it was, and, and, and I think that I wasn't, I don't think I took great care of myself before I became a mom. And I didn't realize that until, you know, after I became a mom, mm-hmm. I wasn't you, I wasn't used to taking care of myself or putting, um, real focus on, you know, sleep, hydration, excellent eating, that kind of thing. And then uh, a, a real cloud of, of depression and, and really nasty internal conversations with myself about my lack of value or my lack of worth or uh, whether I deserve to be a mother, whether I deserve to be a working screenwriter, like what did I deserve and, and um, what were my weaknesses and everybody else was better, stronger, 
more nurturing, whatever. And I was initially blessed that the Writers Guild went on strike because I was not, I had not planned or banked on a maternity leave of any variety, really. I was like, you can write while you're recuperating. Right. I didn't think about what was going to happen to my brain after I had a baby. That's what it was. Like, I knew shit was going to happen to my body, but I was like, I can type. Yeah. Your brain's not working, right? (laughs) Not if you have a serial killer living in your own mind trying to kill you all the time. (laughs) And um, so the Writers Guild went on strike and that was incredible because it gave me, I don't even know how many months. It's real, like, like it just, then I got a coli poisoning. Like it was one redonkulous thing after another. And then the strike ended and I had to write this script. And I did, I wrote the first draft and I don't even know if it was good or not. I don't, mm. you know, I worked really hard on it. Uh, and it was so outside of my depth because it took place in the music industry. And um, I handed it in finally. And they were like, no, we're not even going to give you notes. We want you to start over from the beginning. Uh, ouch. And I had had a beat sheet and an outline that they had read and signed off on. And it was like, I installed a bathroom into someone's house and they were like, where's the kitchen? (laughs) And I just said to my husband, I can't, I can't. And we had just bought a house that we had no business buying on Capitol Hill because we were counting on my consistent income. Mm. Um, So I'm like, bad news, honey. Mm. (laughs) I'm insane. I can't work anymore. Take the child out of daycare because I'm basically just sitting here by myself and staring at a computer, <laughs> feeling suicidal. I feel like we're wasting money on daycare. Yeah. Um, and I need to give this job back. Yeah. And I did. And I had to tell my agent, I had to tell my manager and my lawyer. It was so embarrassing. Oh, wow. <sighs> and that was it. That was my last Hollywood job. So you're just like, I'll just be stay-at-home mom and eat bonbons for the rest of my life yeah and I wasn't good at that either I mean the bonbon sure yeah I mean if I had been so dignified I love it (laughs) still bonbons right like it was bonbons when I was a kid like I'm like you know what I did I sat in the backyard and um and smoked cigarettes and drank bourbon while Sam was at preschool and um then I went to go get him. Like I didn't get drunk, but I would have at the time, mm. I would be stressed all day. I would try to write. I would try to be a good housewife. I would try to do all these things because I was still writing, but okay. mostly as an outlet, not to sell for the love right. of God to sell because the stuff I was writing was dark and still funny, but dark and upsetting and not for everyone. And, but mm-hmm. mostly to get it out because yeah. it was like I had poison in my body. And I had wow. like, everything I wrote, I was like able to off gas some of the, like, I feel scared. Or, you know, when he was a baby, I was like, I don't know what I'm doing. It was not, you know, as I often say to my clients, first drafts for you. Mm. First drafts for you. It is really mm. not for anybody else. Second draft. But, um, but every day before I picked up Sam, I would pour like a single shot of bourbon, get a cigarette, and I would go in the backyard. And I, I had picked up this um, metal, like um, sort of retro '60s kind of chair that I spray painted purple. And I sat, and it kind of had a bounce to it. I would sit in the backyard. God help me if my son ever hears this, or my mother. Um, I would sit in the backyard, and I would have one cigarette and like probably like two ounces of bourbon, and I would rock in that chair by myself. <laughs> Yeah, but you're getting that movement, right? I would go brush my teeth and I would change my outfit and I would wash my face and I would go pick up my son. This is when he was in school. So this was a little further down the road, but it took about five years. Mm -hmm. Now, 
I should say, um, it turns out I had Lyme disease and mold toxicity and my house was really moldy, which I didn't know at that time. So while I was judging myself for mm-hmm. being, you know, a horrible, wretched person, someone who gave up a successful and amazing career, who wasn't mm-hmm. strong enough to support her family, not yeah. a good mother, not a good wife, not a good writer, maybe not even a good person. Yeah. I was filled with Lyme disease and mold. Uh. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting. I totally forgot about this. One thing I did do while I was in this, you know, catastrophic hot zone of, of, of unpleasantness, um, I started writing a column called The uh, Anonymous Adventures of a Capitol Hill Mom because I met one of the local paper editors at the dog park with Sam. And there was this huge schism between dog people and baby people on Capitol Hill uh, because we often shared green space. And so I went home and I wrote about it and I shared it with Andrew. And Andrew was like, you're hilarious. Um, I think you should write a column. He's like, but I want you to really write it in your own voice. But Capitol Hill was a place where like, if you got known for being difficult or like, it would, it, it was a tight community. <laughs> and I was like, I think I'd rather be anonymous. But like, I wrote that first piece and my friend who was not a mom, who was a reporter at CNN or a producer at CNN came up to me at the dog park, like a week later and was like, are you the anonymous mom on Capitol <laughs> I read your column. So I did that for a bit, but again, I was anonymous, right? And, uh, and oh, and one time on, on at, the, at the park with Sam, I was talking to Sam. This woman came up to me, she's like, are you Hill Mom? What? And I was like, I'm in trouble. Oh my God, I'm in trouble, I'm in trouble. I said something offensive. She's like, I just recognized your voice. Wow. Not, not the timber of my voice. Yeah, of course. The writer voice. The writer voice. <laughs> because oh I gosh. write the way I talk. But that was the other weird thing about working in LA. I would email with, you know, um, executives or development people, or whatever, and they'd be like, I'd meet them and then I'd email with them and they'd be like, wow, you write exactly the way you talk. And I'm like, do people not do that? <laughs> so I've always been pretty voicey. And I think that's why people have been telling me since I was young that I am a writer. But it's so interesting because I think when we think about writing, we think about that part where you're sitting down and you're making words magically appear. But really, it's about voice. And I think that, you know, when you when you when you when you said that, it really clicked for me. Like, yeah, it's people are telling you all your life that you're a writer because your voice was so distinct. Yeah. Yeah. And mm. and people. It, but it's quite ordinary to me. Right. So and I would I would wager that this is true for for most people. Your voice is ordinary to you because you hear it all the time, mm, right? Yeah. But when you share it with other people authentically, that's a gift. Yeah, that's a gift. And uh, you know, Madeline Albright passed away yesterday, and um, she had a quote that I that I put on my Instagram page, which is um, I think I'm paraphrasing, but it, it it took me a long time to find my voice, and now I will not be silent. Mm. And like, for me, this is my thing about mental health, regardless of what the cause is, whether it's mold or genetics or Lyme or whatever, circumstance, death, grief, what have you, I will never shut up about Mm -hmm. mental health until Mm -hmm. it is as common to talk about as the sniffles, until it is included in basic health care, like the flu. Mm-hmm. Um, I will never, I mean, basically I'll never shut up anyway. Um, I, I get that. <laughs> I will never be silent, but particularly around depression and mental health. So how did you get to this place where you're at now? Because I know now that you're, you're, you support 
moms that are going through what you went through and and so much more yeah uh, but well, i think um the turning point for me came i started to feel medically better i found a great doctor mm -hmm. um, and then I, I like i was doing um i was getting supported medically i got a great doctor i got a great therapist i got a great therapist who worked with my functional medicine doctor here so that kind of got me back on the rails and my my do convinced me my uh doctor of osteopathy convinced me to tell my story. So I did a storytelling night. I told my story. So that was sort of like, that was the scariest thing I've ever done because up to that point, I had only ever told my whole story to people that I was paying mm -hmm. a doctor, a therapist, people in my life didn't mm -hmm. understand it. They weren't comfortable with it. So that night that I told my story was huge. And I, I did it for a, a place. I've been volunteering at a place called the telling room, which is a writing program here in Portland for, for kids that kind of got me restarted. And then I started doing stand-up again, started writing again. I joined a local community, mm -hmm. like theater death match that meets once a month. That was a lot of fun. I started having fun with my creativity. Yeah. And, um, my friend, Sarah Olin, mm -hmm. who is now um, my partner and the CEO of Luscious Mother and Lumo, which is our corporate arm, she had had a baby. She was in a coach training program in Manhattan, moved from Manhattan to Charlotte, North Carolina, all while like she was having a baby and a new mom all at the same time. And she looked great doing it. And I didn't understand. Yeah. I felt, I felt angry. <laughs> I felt jealous. I felt confused and I needed to know more. I was like, <laughs> what is the story? Cause I'm now finally, and I'm working as a sternman on a lobster boat. That's the other thing I'm doing because I'm so environmentally afraid of working indoors because of molds. Mm, and I have, wow. horrible chemical, I have horrible chemical sensitivity. So I'm this weirdo who's afraid to work indoors. I started afraid working to in a lobster boat and I fucking love it. So I call Sarah and I'm like, what's the haps, dude? Like, why is this going so well for you? Or are you faking it? Is this just a door <laughs> shit? What's happening in the stock room? And she's like, I'm doing really well. And like, I'm, you know, she was getting supported. She was taking care of herself. And this coach training program she was in was teaching her all about like mm. autonomy and personal responsibility and integrity and like uh, project planning and meeting goals. And like, you know, she was killing it. And so I started working for her as her writer, um, as her luscious mother writer, helping her with her newsletters, writing copy. And basically we did that for a while. And then she was like, why don't you get trained to be a coach. Let's become partners. Let's make this a bigger company. Let's support moms. Let's coach moms into creating the lives that they want. Not the lives they think they need or having it all or balancing the work-life balance. Like, what do you want? Mm -hmm. And then what do you want for your kids? Because if you want your kids to live an empowered, awesome, sexy, luscious, cool, fascinating, healthy, fantastic life, where the hell are they going to learn how to do that? Because mm. if you're not doing it, mm -hmm. How do they even know it's possible? So that was Luscious Mother. And so Sarah and I and four other founders got together in November of 2019 and had our first company meeting and our first big brainstorm about how we were going to change the world by helping mothers. We had all kinds of events. And then moms got burnt out on mm -hmm. Zoom, burnt out on the pandemic. And we were like, hey, let's take this to the corporate level. And that's when we started Lumo, which is our corporate arm. And so I'm the chief creative officer of Lumo and Luscious Mother, and I am the sole proprietor and head coach at Anna Conathan Coaching, where I work with writers and creatives, helping them find their voice. And what do you see as like the biggest challenges then in your clients? So I think the, the mothers listening to this show, a creative voice that they're trying to get out. Mm -hmm. 
something I see with all of the mothers I have worked with, regardless of whether they are creative writers or, you know, whether they're, whether they hold themselves as creative or not. Mm-hmm. Um, it is often a struggle for a, a, a mother to sign up for coaching because she sees it as selfish. There's the money component. How dare she spend money on herself, particularly if she's not a working mother, if she's not generating capital personally, it is often a big, it's a leap. It's a, and it's an important leap. It's exciting mm-hmm. when women are like, oh my God, I will invest in myself. I think I'm going to barf. And then um, time. I would say that time is almost more valuable than money. Who am I to take time away from my children? Who am I to take time away from my husband, my family, my partner, my, you know, I'm responsible for my parents, whatever. Who am I to take time for myself? Yes. Is that selfish? And then with creative people, I have a friend who is a mom. She has two kids and she's been a stay-at-home mom who does freelance work, um, sort of in the news world. And she is one of the funniest women I know, hands down. And as long as we've known each other since before our Sam, so 16 years, 17 years, she has wanted to write, but it's like, I'm just not writing. Why am I not writing? I'm not writing. So I get a lot of clients who are like, I'm not writing. And I'm like, well, I'm not really a writing coach at this point. Now I'm just like psychological support. And we're trying to clear the debris out of the road. Why aren't like, why aren't you writing? Like, what's the pain? What's the fear? What does the itty bitty shitty committee in your head have to say? And with, with this particular friend, we're, we're going to talk today about her joining my scribe squad, which starts Mm. April. And it's a small group coaching scenario designed for people who are in a project and want to complete it. And they want to do it with support and accountability and scheduled writing time, yada, yada. Mm-hmm. So she's like, I don't know, I want to, but I'm not. And I was like, okay, let's talk tomorrow. I'm like, but I have a writing assignment for you to do before we can talk. And she's like, mm-hmm. Ugh. I'm like, I want you to write down every reason you shouldn't do Scribe Squad, every reason why you shouldn't be a writer, um, and all the nasty things that your itty bitty shitty committee has to say. Just take dictation, just bring all the noise, all the funk and put it down on a piece of, of, of legal paper. And just, uh, so when we get together, I want you to tell me all the reasons why you shouldn't do this. Mm-hmm. Let's just get that, get all the garbage into the road. Stop hiding it under the dust cover and in the closet, whatever, like, let's get it all out. Let's take inventory mm-hmm. and figure out like, what's really in your way, real or imagined, because I don't think it's, I can't find time to write. Mm-hmm. Um, and I realized that, that that could be triggering for some people because some people are very busy. But as someone who writes talking into my iPhone while I drive, I wrote a whole one act play that way that ended up getting into a festival. You know, she goes across the room, period. He says, comma, parentheses, no, you don't. Like literally while I'm driving. So you want to write? You can write. You're fucking scared. And that's Mm. okay. But let's talk about what you're scared about, because that is likely the thing that's in the way of, which is why I don't, I don't read, um, I don't believe in writer's block. I believe writer's block is you're trying to come through the wrong door. You need to walk around behind the house and come through the back door or through the chimney like Santa or open a window, or you may be working on the wrong project, but you can Mm -hmm. always write. You just may not be able to keep, if you're banging your head on the same entrance, Mm -hmm. walk away, you know? So, so I like digging into, I would, I would say that my coaching style is, is writing coaching because it's dialogue, voice, character, beating out the story, story structure, playing with, um, you know, pivots and twists and all that stuff. So there's that, the writing component, but so much of it is really life coaching. Cause it's like, what's coming up, what's mm-hmm. in the way, what's keeping you from getting where you want to go. Do you really want to go there? Or is that somewhere someone told you that you needed to go? 
Maybe you don't even want to go over there. Maybe you actually want to go over here, you know? So putting those two things together can be really exciting. And I have a client who went from an anonymous fan fiction writer two years ago. She was writing great fan fiction under a, a num de plume. And now she has a huge two book deal with a major uh, romance publishing house under her name. And she, they're giving her a ridiculous amount of money, you know, but she, she had to get all the, the hardest part wasn't getting the agent in the deal. It was getting the shit out, out of the road and getting her yeah. manuals done. Yeah. And when you look back yourself um, and during your early writing times as a script writer, where you were getting, um, you know, like you said, you're, you're, you were a script writer, you were a working script writer, but you had that itty bitty shitty committee in your head. Mm -hmm. Do you see that as like, is that fundamentally what, what most moms are facing now? Do you see like, um, strategies for helping them with that? I think that um, doing it anyway, yeah. right? Um, knowing that the discomfort is part of evolution, it's part of transformation, it's part mm. of discovery, it's yeah. part of creativity. Um, I'm wandering around the wilderness right now and I hate it because I'm, I'm putting together a proposal for this book and it's like, who's it for and who's our avatar and like what's the competition and I'm looking at the competition I'm like oh, really suck. nobody wants to read my book and I'm like I've started adding at the bottom of my document for my book I have a parking lot where I'm dumping I'm taking dictation from the itty bitty shitty committee mm. when it's like you suck I'm like you suck. like I take it out of my head and I put it in the bottom of the document and maybe when I'm done I write a book about how uncomfortable it is to write a book but um, <laughs> pushing yeah. through and, and doing it anyway setting an alarm for 20 minutes and just being like, okay, I'm going to sit down and I'm going to write badly. I am going to write as badly as I can for the next 20 minutes. And when the alarm goes off, I will be free. A lot of times the alarm goes off and you've, you've got a foothold. So you stay. Mm -hmm. But I would say, do it anyway, even if it sucks, especially if it sucks, let it suck. Set an alarm. You can write for five minutes. You can write for 10 minutes. My friend, Julie, who lives next door, who's a writer and runs an organization called the Manuscript Academy. She has a, a theory called touch it. Mm. Print it out, put it on a flat surface somewhere that you walk by every day. I don't care if you're just adding a comma or a dotting an I or literally just touch it, touch it. Imbue, touch it. imbue it with your power, imbue <laughs> it with your love, you know? And writing doesn't have to happen sitting in a chair. It doesn't. You can yeah. do it while you're walking. You can take a notebook and go to the woods, go to a coffee shop, go to a beach, go somewhere else, change your environment. Uh, if you can't change what's happening in your head, change your scenery, mm -hmm. move your body. Um, you know, you got to gamify yourself. And then on top of that, you've got the, oh, it's so, it's so selfish for me to spend time on myself. I, I got to do these 20 things for everybody else. And then if there's time, I'll find time to write. Mm -mm. It's not going to happen. It's going to keep getting bumped. It's going to keep getting bumped. And I'm guilty of it. I, I studied it. I was a professional. I am a now professional coach and I still have to deal with my squirrely self. Mm. I don't want to do it right now. I'll do it later. No, you won't. No, you won't. I set alarms to remind myself to sit down and write. I set alarms when I sit down to write, like it takes effort. And I, I honestly, I'm gonna say it. 
And Dorothy Parker said it too. I hate writing. <laughs> but I love, love having written. Nothing thrills me more than writing something great and the reading it over and over and laughing mm. at my own joke. Oh, it's mm -hmm. the best. <laughs> but the process of writing itself is rarely pleasurable. Every so often, like I said, the Holy Spirit comes or whoever or whatever, yeah. the force comes and it's like, oh, and I'm like, I can't type fast enough. That happens. But I would yeah. say that happens once a month, maybe. Mm -hmm. So I'm hearing like, just know that it will be uncomfortable and you will hear the critiques and, you know, get that, get those critiques out of your head if that helps you, but push, push through it and set the, yeah, set those timers, force yourself, give yourself permission to do it messy and just the permission for the space and the time, because I agree. I think as a, especially as, as I think as women, but then compounding that with the mother identity is that there's so much reluctance uh, for myself included that my husband calls it minimizing because I'll, I will ask for things, but I'll be like, just this little bit and he'll be like is it just really that little bit or do you need like two hours and i'll be like yeah two hours i and i don't know why i it's it's almost like um a fear of being seen as needing uh i think it's you know it's because yeah. he will you know most always say yes like for sure we can work that out but i have a a reluctance to ask for help i mean if you can get your needs met Mm -hmm. Right. And again, you can play psychological games with yourself, right? You could go to your husband and say, Hey, I think I need like two to three hours to write. What do mm -hmm. you need? Like, yeah. let's create something. Like, exactly. what do you want? Or enroll your kids. Kids love to be careful with this one. Kids love to be your accountability partner. So if you say to your kid, I told my son, I'm going to pay him $5 a week. If I do my PT for my plan professional <laughs> every day and he gets me to do it every day, I will give him $5 on Friday. Um, That's so amazing. You want an accountability partner? It's probably mm -hmm. not your partner, your spouse, your kids. They love having a little bit of real estate <laughs> to roll over, you know? They're like, if you let me write, you know, I'm, this is what I'm gonna do for an hour. You know, this is obviously age dependent and developmentally. <laughs> you have to adjust it for your yeah. child's age. But if you start, if you start conditioning your children now to understand that you have needs and you have mm -hmm. a job, yeah. um, something that you care about, you're teaching them project management. You're teaching them how to create agreements. You're teaching them integrity, responsibility, um, generosity, um, respect. I mean, these are great opportunities. So if you're worried you're selfish or you're wasting your family's money, pivot it. Mm -hmm. Dare to see, dare mm -hmm. to see what you're able to create with your family around this because then they'll be invested then they'll want to know how's it going now that's a double-edged sword because if you're not writing your family is going to call you out on it. <laughs> yeah no but i love that pivot because I, I do hear that a lot too of moms i mean i'm pretty good at investing myself but i hear a lot from um you know moms in online groups about that reluctance to spend money on themselves and like that fear of not feeling worthy and so i love that you're pivoting that and saying, you know, by doing this, you're actually, uh, you know, teaching your family, your children about pursuing skills, uh, you're, you can engage them in the process. And so then they're being part of this, you know, project that you're working towards and they're learning skills. So don't see it as a selfish act, see it as an investment in your whole family. Yeah. It's, it's yeah. Cultivation. And, you know, 
add my life changed in my marriage. And this has nothing to do with my writing. When um, we started having, and this is spotty, we're not always consistent, but a weekly team meeting for my husband and I, you know, and the goal is that I will meet him in town and have lunch with him on Fridays. And we will like generate what do we want to do for the weekend. We'll generate what do we want to do oh. next week. Now that sounds that. awesome. So it's still a work in progress. <laughs> and then, um, oh, we have a shared grocery app that's on my phone, Mike's phone and Sam's phone. Your life will change when your child can make their own sandwich and add food to the grocery app. <laughs> we have our conversations about what's for dinner before 10 a.m. now. And this is only because of catastrophe and sugar crashing. Um, and then we have this shared app so that when we run out of something, you open your phone, you put in milk, then you throw the milk away. Um, and it syncs throughout all three phones. So if I put milk in my phone, it then shows mm -hmm. up in everybody else's phone. So whoever goes to the grocery store has a synced, you can actually sync right up to like the moment that they're in the store buying. Right. So just what? those little, yeah. little cheats, those little things that you can do. Like my son almost gave my husband a nervous breakdown because he can't tie his shoes. He's 14 years old and he still ties his shoes like huge bunny ears and around the rabbit hole. And they're like, oh my God, years and years. And then finally I was like, I'm going to make like a millennial and I'm going to figure out how to lace his vans. So the laces go inside the shoe and he can slip them on. Yeah. Years. And then I watched the three minute video and I can't tell you the quality of life that it has brought <laughs> to departures in the morning. So just remember, you're creative, you're a creative writer, but you're also a creative brain. You can buy back time. You can create learning experiences. You can, mm. you know, instead of seeing your family as this ragtag group of people that you have to drag across the goddamn finish line, like they're not useless people. You have to have <laughs> And the time you invest in training them is going to be a gift on the back end. And then they're going to go to school. Like Sheila, one of the luscious mother founders, she has two boys in college. And when the eldest went away, he's like, I don't know. I'm so scared. I don't know how to do laundry. I don't know how to cook. And, it, and it's your fault. And she's like, I had been trying to get them to do all these things, but they didn't want to. And I gave up because I was pissed, frustrated, and tired. And I wanted to do it my own way. Mm -hmm. Now he's blaming me that he doesn't know how to do laundry or make a soup, you know? So she yeah. did. And with the second one, she, she got it, but she's like, like she could just suddenly see, mm. you know, what was her fault and what was his fault. Like he hadn't, yeah. he hadn't been curious until he got desperate. Yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's cool to be able to teach our kids some of this stuff surreptitiously in a sneaky, like karate kid kind of way. Yeah. Uh, wow. I mean, you shared a lot of great tips and advice. So what advice would you give to yourself of, um, well, I'll take my own advice would be the first one. <laughs> yeah. Take your advice, Anna. <laughs> but what about the, the Anna that was just, was in that script writing mm. field and scared. You mentioned at one point that you were scared all the time, but at the same from the outside, I mean, you had a, you know, a dream job. Yeah. The storefront looked great. Yeah, the storefront looked great. What, what advice would you having, give up? Not having a poster, no movie poster, but otherwise looked good. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I would say to myself, if I could go back, I would say you're really smart and you're really funny and you just don't really know it yet, but trust me, mm -hmm. I've been to the other side and it's okay. I would say, get supported. Don't be afraid to get supported. When I was an actress, I had an acting coach. Anytime I had an audition, I met with an acting coach. I was in an acting class, you know, mm -hmm. get support. Don't be afraid. I didn't have the imagination to think beyond the people who were my support. 
but they didn't want to hear that I was struggling. That would have made them really anxious. Mm. Could have gotten support somewhere else. Um, so get supported. Um, dare to trust in yourself. Take the risk of trusting that you know how to be with this. And also just let yourself write badly. You know, Annie Lamott's book, Bird by Bird, is still one of the very best books I've ever read. Annie Lamott was a recovering alcoholic, single mom with no money, oh. no computer, and no office. And she wrote her first, at least first book, if not books. So she's like, I don't care who you are, you can write a book. Mm. Sit down and write badly. <laughs> write really yeah. Shitty first drafts, people. There's nothing more cathartic than transforming a shitty first draft. So dare to write shitty. Well, thank you so much for coming on the show. So where can people catch up with you? Um, well, I'm at Anna Conathan uh, Coaching, A-N-N-A-C-O-N-A-T-H-A-N Coaching on Instagram and on Facebook. Um, and my company has Facebook, social media, a website, all the fancy things. We are Lumo Leadership, L-U-M-O, and we are Luscious Mother. And I think we have Lumo, LumoLeadership.com and LusciousMother.com. And then the same on, on Instagram and Facebook. And I hear that we also do TikToks and Pinterest. And I don't even know what else. Lots of lots of things. So... <laughs> So maybe and, um, start. I, also do, I do complimentary sessions. So if you're curious about hiring oh. a writing coach um, or a, a coach to support you with, with work and parenting, I do 30 minute complimentary sessions. So um, my email is Anna at AnnaConathanCoaching.com. Perfect. Thank you so much for coming on the show today, Anna. This has been such a delight. Thank you. It's been a real pleasure. I hope you enjoyed the conversation and have provided so many incredible insights that we can all apply, whether we are screenwriters or not. So here are the top takeaways. Number one, if you have an itty bitty shitty committee talking in your head, write that stuff down. Get it out of your head. Number two, writing sucks, but having written is divine. Number three, if you can't change what's happening in your head, change your surroundings. Go for a run. Go for a walk. Go for a drive. Number four, when asking your partner for help, ask them what they need too. Number five, kids can be your accountability partners. And number six, sharing your voice authentically with others is a gift. And number seven, it's okay to feel shitty for a while. Thanks for listening to the show. If any of these takeaways resonated for you, let me know. DM me on Instagram. I would love to share your comments on the next episode. In the meantime, if you want to chat with show guests or other listeners, you can find us on Facebook at These Moms Write. I also have a weekly newsletter where you can get updates on all of the shows. I'll put links to both of those in the show notes, as well as all of the great resources that Anna shared today. It would mean so much to me if you could like, rate, or review this podcast on Apple or Spotify. I love you guys. Talk to you next week. In the meantime, happy writing.